First Kings chapter four. First Kings chapter four. Nine songs have been written with the title, Let the Good Times Roll. Sadly, most of those songs are either about the illusory life of being high or about someone's successes in life. None of them have to do with God's blessing or even uh, peace in society. Well, Israel is currently experiencing that definition of good times. Solomon's ruling with a hearing heart. The people respect him. He is close with the Lord, and God is blessing him with honor and riches. And so in chapter 4 here, the writer lays down for us how God has kept all of his promises, not just to Solomon, but to his father David as well. So chapter 4, we begin in verse 1. It says, And so Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were the princes which he had, Azariah the son of Zadok the priest, Elihoreph and Ahiah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder, and Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the host, and Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers, and Zabad, the son of Nathan, was principal officer and the king's friend. And Ahishar was over the household, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the tribute. So we start here in verse 1. It says, so King Solomon was king over all Israel. This is important because even during David's reign, he was not always king over all Israel. Sometimes there's only portions of Israel that he ruled over. During David's reign, the kings were, uh, the tribes were often at odds with each other. Well, this goes away, it tells us here during the beginning of Solomon's wise reign. No tribal disgruntledness, none of that's going on here. Everyone is united. Even though it doesn't last long, that's how it is here at the beginning of Solomon's reign. And as other writers have been doing in First and Second Samuel, it kind of gives us now, lays out for us who Solomon's cabinet consisted of. It mentions these were the princes which he, Solomon, had. The word princess here just means a leader of government or society. So this is, this is Solomon's cabinet per se. Starts off by saying, Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. The high priest, Zadok's grandson here. The word son just means male descendant in Hebrew. So it could be son, grandson, great-grandson. It could even be nephew. But he was likely one of Solomon's most trusted advisors here. Mentions Elihoreph and Ahiah, the sons of Shisha, were the scribes. Shisha was David's scribe. The word scribe means personal secretary. So these guys handled the military, national, and foreign correspondence that Solomon needed both of this guy's sons, these guys' sons to run this position shows just how much the kingdom's influence had expanded during Solomon's reign. It mentions next that Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was the recorder. Uh, this guy was David's uh, royal historian. That's what the word there means, the record keeper. Uh, so he's still serving, um, still trucking away. Benaiah, verse 4, the son of Jehoiada was over the host. Remember, Joab was executed a couple chapters ago, and Benaiah was given the position. Benaiah was originally David's chief bodyguard of his, of his personal bodyguard. He was in charge of them. He was David's close friend, and now he's uh, in charge of the entire army of Israel. 
It mentions here that Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. These royal records, wherever the writer, remember the writer is writing this to the exiles in Babylon. So this is hundreds of years after these events. So whatever records he's using, they are written down here and they are prior to Abiathar's banishment. Remember Solomon banished him because he supported Adonijah's desire to be king. So Solomon banishes him, but at this point he was still in that position uh, with sharing it with Zadok. Verse 5 says, Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. The word officers just means the royal tax collectors. There were 12 of them, but this guy was their boss. He was the head of Solomon's IRS. Okay, some of you are still awake. This is great. A couple of you laughed. Uh, it mentions that he was, this guy, Zabud, the son of Nathan, was the principal officer and the king's friend. This, that means he was the king's most trusted advisor, which is probably why he was the chief of all these leaders. It mentions in verse 6, Ahishar was over the household, the palace. This is a new role. Again, it shows how much Israel's prospering, that Solomon needs someone to be in charge of the palace now, not just his family like David did, but now the entire palace because there's more going on there. We'll get to that in a little bit later in the chapter. And then lastly, it says Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the tribute. The word here, tribute, refers to the forced labor. Now, remember way back in 1 Samuel when Israel asked for a king, and the Lord said to Samuel, he said, go tell the people what it means to have a king. And so Samuel came out, and he said, he's going to conscript your sons and your daughters, and they're going to become his servants and his maidservants, and he's going to conscript your fields and all these types. This is what it means to have a king. Well, now they're experiencing it. David had this group of forced labor, and now Solomon continues that tradition of forced labor. These were Israelis who served in the king's personal projects and other public works. These were not slaves. They were paid, but they were forced to do the job. They didn't get to choose this. There was no recruitment or sign-up. They were required to do this because the king said so. And this guy, Adoniram, was their boss. He was the same man who held that position under David. And again, some of these guys must have been younger when they first started serving under David because they're still around for most of Solomon's reign. Now, verses 7 through 19 are not as exciting as those six verses. I know it was probably a little bit too much excitement for you. <laughs> verses 7 through 19, though, begin to list those 12 tax collectors. So, uh, nothing to juice up a Bible story like naming the tax collectors. So, verse 7, and Solomon had 12 officers. We met their boss in verse 5 that guy Nathan, uh, but now we meet the 12 guys underneath him who are responsible for gathering the taxes. It says Solomon had 12 of these tax collectors over all Israel, which provided victuals, which just means food, drink, the daily needs of life, for the king and his household, each man his month in a year made provision. So these guys each had a year to raise the funds necessary to purchase what was needed to run the palace for a month. That's quite a bit of funding that's necessary. So, now when we get to these taxing districts, it's going to mention in verse 8, when you look at this, if you go and look at this online, you'll notice that the tax districts are actually different than the tribal allotments. I don't know if Solomon did that on purpose because he didn't want like any, like he didn't want any tribes to feel even more divided. He's trying to unite the nation. So, the taxing districts are, are pretty different than the tribal allotments. Some are similar, but most of them are 
unique. Now, again, I'm not going to go into the details on each region. I'm just going to highlight some of the unique things that are mentioned here in verses 7 through 19. So verse 8, these are their names. The son of Hur, he was in Mount Ephraim. That was his taxing district. The son of Dekar in Makaz and in Shalbim and Beth Shemesh and Elon Beth Hanan. Number three, verse 10, the son of Hesed was in Aruboth. To him pertained also, it says, Soko and all the land of Hefer. Verse 11, the son of Abinadab in all the region of Dor. And then it mentions here, which had Tephath, the daughter of Solomon, to wife. So this is interesting here. Abinadab here is also the name of David's nephew and Solomon's cousin. It is likely that's who's in mind here. Now, he's married to Solomon's daughter. To have a daughter old enough to give in marriage means Solomon had been married for quite a few years before he became king. The marriage that, is, that this girl comes from, this daughter comes from, is very likely the marriage described in the Song of Solomon, the only wife that Solomon should have had. A lot of times people, like, they, you'll get to teach the Song of Solomon, like, hey, we're going to talk about love. And you're like, why are we talking about Solomon? Solomon's the guy who had 300 wives and 700 concubines. What does he know about love? Well, it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always that way. When you read the story of the Song of Solomon and you see the relationship that Solomon had in those early years with his wife, the wife of his youth, the only woman he should have married, it's a special thing. That's where the story is sad. It didn't stay that way. It's why there's the book of Ecclesiastes right next to it. Because Solomon eventually backslid, and Ecclesiastes is a record of Solomon's backslidings. We go on, verse 12, Banna the son of Ahilud, to him pertained Tanakh and Megiddo, and all Bethshan, which is by Zartana, between Jezreel, from Bethshan to Abel Mahola, even unto the place that is beyond Jokneam. This is the whole area of that valley of Megiddo or Jezreel Valley. The whole Jezreel Valley that's up there in the northern part of Israel, that whole region, this guy was in charge of that. Verse 13, the son of Geber was in Ramoth-Gilead, so now we're jumping over to the other side, Jordan. To him pertained the towns of Jair, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead. He also pertained the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, three score or sixty great cities with walls and brass bars. Now, this is about as far northeast, like if you're if we're looking from your perspective, you've got the, the tribes over here, and then you cross over Jordan, and you've got the three tribes that were over there on the other side, Jordan, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad, Gad, and then Reuben. In the north, you had that other half-tribe of Manasseh, and if you went all the way out here to the far corner of Israel's boundaries of the tribal boundaries is where these cities are mentioned. It calls them great cities because these were the massive giant cities in the far northeast that originally belonged to Og, the king of Bashan. He was a giant. There are some very interesting historical records of these ancient cities with their huge walls and oversized buildings. No one has any explanation for them. And so it's possible that's why the writer points them out here, that they're great cities. He's like, those are those giant cities. We go down to verse 14, and it says, Ahinadab, the son of Edo, had Mahanaim. That's the middle territory on the other side, Jordan. Ahimeaz was in Naphtali. He also took Basmath, the daughter of Solomon, to wife. Baana, the son of Hushai, was in Asher and in Eloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua, was in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah, was in Benjamin. 
And then verse 19, Geber the son of Uri was in the country of Gilead, in the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. And he was the only officer which was in that region. So this is the very southernmost area on the other side, Jordan. It was a gigantic region, which is probably why it mentions that there was only one guy in charge of it, even though it's probably the largest taxing district, is because it just there weren't as many people living out there. All right, enough of that excitement. Verse 20. It says in verse 20, and Judah and Israel were many as the sand which is by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. And Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour and 60 measures of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 oxen out of the pastures, and 100 sheep besides hearts, roebucks, and fallow deer, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion all over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsa even to Azza, over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Now, it starts off here in verse 20 by explaining how good things were in Israel. Judah and Israel were many, it says, as the sand which is by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. Here we see God's promise to Abraham fulfilled from Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, when he told Abraham that in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. That's what God promised a guy who at that point in time had zero children. Maybe you have something that God's put on your heart, and it's just not happening something that God's given you vision for or something that God's promised you and you just, it's not happening. And you see no way it's going to happen in the future. Let me encourage you. God keeps His promises and He never fails. He never fails. He's not always early, but He's never late. This word Mary here means a feeling or attitude of contentment and joy. In other words, these were very good times in Israel. People were prosperous. Life was good. Which, of course, raises a challenging question to us. Why is it that when times are good, we are so easily tempted to slack off spiritually? Right? I mean, maybe, I, maybe you haven't experienced that. I saw a couple nod heads. But I know I have. Like, life's good. I'm not, I have, don't have anything I'm, like, desperate for God about that I need Him to move. Life's good. And all of a sudden, it becomes incredibly tempting to just start slacking off spiritually. Why is that? Why is it that I'm so easily tempted to compromise or go into sin when things are great? It is very easy to forget just how desperate we were before we were in good times. It is so very easy. We have such short memories. There'll be times the enemy will tempt me with something, and the Holy Spirit's just kind of coming right alongside of it, and he's reminding me, saying, Will, do you remember where that road leads? 
Do you remember the bondage you were in way many years ago because you gave into those type of temptations? Or do you remember what it was like when you were in this type of a situation in your spiritual life? It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to forget the times when you were crying out to God going, God, just take this out of my life. Lord, rescue me somehow. I don't want this in my life anymore. It's so easy to forget it when things are good. It's so easy to forget why we are where we are now, that it's the Lord who rescued us. It's the Lord who delivered us. We have such short memories. We could be here on a Sunday and we're praising the Lord for all of your goodness. Man, God's so awesome and so good. And then you get to work on Monday and something's wrong. And you're like, ah, God doesn't love me. Right? I don't even know if you're out there, Lord. Do you even hear my prayers? And he's like, do you remember the last five days? He doesn't do that because he's much nicer than I am. But there are those times in my life when I've been so frustrated I'm just like, Lord, what are you doing? What is going on? And that still small voice will whisper in my ear and say, Will, do you remember all the other times you were in spots like this? Yes. Are you still here? Yes. Why are you so concerned? David, he writes it multiple times in songs where he's talking to himself in the song. And he says, soul, we need to have a conversation. Why are you so downcast? Why are you so disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. You know the first time David writes that song? He writes it the day right after his own men were ready to stone him. Right after. You survived that, David. What are you worried about now? Well, the Amalekites, they've got our families. They've got my wife. They've got my kids. They've got all our, all the, everybody. They've got everything. Okay, David, well, you survived the stoning from your own men. Surely I can deliver you from your enemies. When we look at the story, as we're going to keep moving in Kings, we're going to learn that these good times don't last long. When Solomon's son becomes king, the people complain about how hard life had been. Man, your dad, Solomon, man, he whipped us with, I don't remember the name of it, he called it, but something. Chastened us with whips, that's what he said. And, you know, Rabboam's response is, you think my dad was tough? I'm not going to say what else he says, but he goes, he goes, he whipped you with whips, or he struck you with whips, I'm going to strike you with scorpions. But the idea is that, okay, something changed at some point where life was good, and then all of a sudden by the end, when his son becomes king and he dies, people are going, life stinks. Life stinks. Which means the nation didn't stay in a place of prosperity. They didn't stay in a place of being merry, a feeling or an attitude of contentment and joy. And of course, that was because of, as we'll read, Solomon's poor decisions. I think good times can be some of the most dangerous times for us as believers because we can lose our desperate need for the Lord. I was reading just a couple days ago about King Uzziah. God is so gracious. Like you read about some of these guys and it starts their story off and it says, and King Uzziah reigned next and he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then you start reading this story and you're like, he did a lot of wrong things. 
my eyes. How can you say that he did that was right in the eyes of the Lord? But then you'll get some of these subtle explanations. Uzziah did walk with the Lord most of his days, but then it, it, says, it, it says that, but when he became strong, he was lifted up in his heart. Now, right before it says he became strong and he was lifted up in his heart, it mentioned that the reason that things were going so well in Israel and that he was doing so well as a king is because he was, quote, marvelously helped by God. I was so challenged when I read that. I was like, God, I don't ever want to not be marvelously helped by you. I don't want to ever become strong that my heart's lifted up. I want to always be in the center of being marvelously helped. Like, Lord, right now I want to change the name of the church to Calvary Chapel, marvelously helped. Because I never want that to change here. Like, I never want that to change. Like, no matter how good things are, no matter how good things are for me or for our church, for my family, I never want to become someone who became strong and his heart was lifted up. Some people say, don't pray a prayer like that. That's when God sends desperate times so that you get desperate for him. Let me tell you why I'm okay with that. Not asking for trouble, Lord. I'm okay with that because I know he's good. I used to hear all the time, and I thought it made sense. Don't pray for patience because God will give you situations that will provide the opportunity for you to learn patience. But that, the very nature of that implies that if we ask for good gifts, that God doesn't give us good gifts. It implies that if we ask God for a fish, he gives us a stone. I want to stay in a place where I'm desperate for the Lord. I want to stay in a place where I am being marvelously helped by God. I don't ever want to get in a place where I am strong and my heart might be lifted up. Well, Israeli taxation wasn't the only form of Solomon's income. Verse 21 tells us he received tribute from other kingdoms that he inherited from his father. Verse 21, and Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the Euphrates River, unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. Pardon me, they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. And I had a map for that. Now, you see the, the yellow part way up at the top by the Euphrates River? That's the part that the writer here is talking about. That's the section the writer's talking about here. Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river, so all the way up by where Assyria is, just to the left of that, where that yellow region is, or the, the I guess it's all yellow, the, the more colored yellow area. That's the Euphrates River that's being talked about here. Uh, it's not the far eastern part of the Euphrates River near Babylon. Israel never controlled that area. This refers to the northern part of the river that flows through Syria, land that David had already conquered. And so that's a huge amount of property when you think about it compared to the little sliver of land that Israel has right now. Very different. So Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from all the way up in the northeast in Syria, unto the land of the Philistines, and then all the way to the border of Egypt. And all those kingdoms, they, so the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and multiple kingdoms in modern-day Syria, they brought presents here. And this is, these are not, these are not, hey, Solomon, happy birthday presents. These are obligatory tribute as an act of submission. These are part of treaty arrangements that David made with these nations when he conquered them, they said, hey, we surrender, we'll serve you, we'll be tribute to you, here's the agreement we'll make so you don't kill us all. That's just how it worked. 
And so this tribute was a requirement to be a vassal of the king of Israel. And if you stopped paying the tribute, it meant you got invaded. Now, how prosperous was Solomon from all this tribute from multiple nations? Well, we get a small glimpse by looking at the daily food consumption just in the palace. Verses 22 and 23, Solomon's provision for one day, one day of food, was 30 measures of fine flour. A measure here is a core in Hebrew, which is around 200 liters. When you add up the 30 cores of fine flour and the 60 cores of grain, that's about 28,000 pounds of bread. That's an astronomical amount of food needs for his family and for the palace servants and any governing officials who are there throughout the day. Some have estimated that over 10,000 people were in Solomon's palace on a daily basis. Now, that's not too big of a problem when you got 700 concubines. If they all got just one kid, you got 1,000 right there. Mouths to feed. 2,000 mouths to feed. When you look at the meat portion, when it mentions here 10 fat oxen, 20 oxen out of the pastures, 100 sheep, that works out to about 10,000 people that you need to feed every day. By comparison, the U.S. Capitol building only has about 2,000 people working concurrently in it. There were people everywhere in Solomon's palace. And the writer in verse 24 gives us a clue why. It says, for, why do they need so much food? For, he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, again, that northeastern part uh, up in Syria, from Tifsa, Tifsa is a city that's right there on the west bank of the Euphrates River that was on the map. From Tifsa, it says, even unto Aza, which is just another name for Gaza, which is the southernmost of the royal, Philistine royal cities. And he had peace on all sides round about him. In other words, Solomon very likely had all sorts of foreign dignitaries at the palace. It's very likely he even had important family members from the kingdoms that were subservient to him. It's likely those families lived there in the palace. He would, they were, would have been kept in Jerusalem to ins- ensure that the other kings wouldn't rebel. Part of the treaty would be, I get your two oldest sons. And so the two oldest sons would come down with their families and their children and retinue and all that, and they'd live there in the palace. That way, anytime if dad, King Dad started acting up, you'd send a little thing in the mail and you'd open up and it'd be your son's thumb. No, I'm just kidding. No, but you would have that threat always lying in front of you that you get out of line, I'll kill the heir. They would have needed to be fed at the palace as well. It was also considered an honor, an honor to be there at the palace of the king that your father was tribute to. You'd usually be able to rise up and have power even in those positions, so it's not all negative. But this peace and the prosperity that Solomon experienced in his own personal finances extended beyond him to the entire nation of Israel. Verse 25, in Judah and Israel, it says, dwelt safely every man under his vine and under his fig tree from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. The word safely there, it means with confidence, with a feeling of of absolute security. This idea of them camping out under their fig trees, when we were over in Israel, it gets hot really fast. We usually try to go over there during March when it's not so hot. If you go over there in the summer, it's blistering hot. 
but the sun just beats down on you even though it's not summer. And so there's not like easy ways to get refreshment or some type of escape from the heat. And so the fig trees and the, the grapevines, those are the places that you would tend to find people getting shade, some way to get some respite from the heat. But this phrase that people are hanging out under their trees is a phrase that describes a time of no fear of war. You didn't have to worry about anything. You weren't out there camping out on the edge of your borders to make sure that nobody invaded. You worked your fields, you worked your livestock or whatever your profession was, and then you went home and you relaxed because there was nothing else to trouble them in life. We were having a conversation with my kids at uh, lunch today, and one of them brought up about wanting to travel and stuff. And, you know, he said, but I don't want to go where, there's, where it's safe to be a Christian. And, uh, and, and he asked, you know, is this place safe? Is this place safe? And, you know, we began to talk about, you know, what it's like living in other places. And he said, well, you know, I'm glad we have freedom to do that here. I said, I am too. I said, but there's no guarantee it will stay that way. And I loved their question. They said, well, what would we do if they took that freedom away? And I said, we're going to keep walking with Jesus just like our brothers and sisters do in all the other parts of the world where they can't do that. He's like, because they asked, would we shut down the church? I said, no. I'll end up in jail, but no. (laughs) Then we'll have a prison ministry and we'll do it there. We had a missionary friend of ours, a really special guy, um, his name was Wood, and uh, Wood had been in jail, and he's from China. He'd been in jail 10 times. I remember he came one day, at that time I think Joel was what, was he 9 or 11 or something like that, pretty young, and he said, hey, I want to take your son with me to China for the summer. And I was like, no. <laughs> he said, you American parents, he said, you, you baby your kids. He said, you're too easy on your kids. I, said, I was like, Wood, I'm like, I'm not sending my son to China with you. He said, you, you go to jail all the time. <laughs> I, said, I don't want my son ending up in a Chinese prison, you know. <laughs> but every time they would deport him, you know, after they let him out of jail, he'd find a way to get back in and go preach the gospel. You talked about one time, because you have to understand something, like in China in particular, it's not everywhere, it's not like this, but in China in particular, they have state religions, but I shouldn't should even say state religions, but they have state-sanctioned churches that you can attend. But if you're, you're not, those churches are allowed to exist because the idea is they, they have loyalty is to the state. And because worship in China is seen as where you serve the state. That's why religion is is persecuted so much, because your worship is to be to the state, to the nation. And so when they arrest you and they question you and they tell you you need to repent, they actually use that word. You need to repent. You need to stop doing this and repent and change and return your loyalty to the nation. And I remember when Pastor Wood was arrested one time, and he, he was brought in, and they were questioning him and telling him he needed to repent, and telling him he needed to repent, and he was in the, in the cell by himself afterwards, he's crying out to the Lord. He's like, Lord, why, why am I here? Lord, I'm trying to serve you, and, and why am I in prison again? And he said, that still small voice said, because you need to repent, Wood. And he said, what? 
You need to repent. You got things in your life I want to deal with, and you're not listening. And so when they brought him before the tribunal where they're going to question him if he's repented, and, and he said to him, he said, would have you repented? He goes, yes. He goes, and I thank you so much for this opportunity for me to repent. He goes, because it allowed me to be alone with Jesus in the cell, and he could deal with me in all sorts of ways he wouldn't when I was busy doing ministry. And he said, thank you so much for arresting me and giving me the opportunity to repent. They didn't know what to do with him. So they put him back on a plane and shipped him back over to the States. <laughs> we are not guaranteed by Jesus to every man be under his vine and his fig tree like we are now. Nobody tells me to do when I, with my free time. I'm not sitting out there on my front porch, you know, with a, a weapon because there's enemies that are out there trying to harm me. But God doesn't guarantee that that's the Christian life. Many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world live in that place where they, they go and they, they preach the gospel, but at the same time, they're, sometimes they're on the run. Sometimes they're protecting their family. Now, part of the reason that Israel could be confident like this and relaxed like this is because Solomon had built up the military. Verse 26 here, it says, and Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers provided victual for King Solomon. And for all that came unto King Solomon's table, every man in his month, they lacked nothing. Barley also and straw for the horses and the dromedaries did they bring unto the place where the officers were, every man according to his charge. And so we find out that they weren't only responsible for supplying the needs of the palace, but also they were responsible for supplying the needs of this cavalry. I got to see one of these stables in the excavated ruins of Megiddo. It's just a normal trip you take when you go to Israel. And it's really cool because you look at this and you have living evidence of why God disciplined His people. Because while this seems to be a wise move militarily, and part of the reason that Israelites at this point didn't have to worry about war anywhere in the nation, this is a compromise on Solomon's part. God specifically told Israel hundreds of years before Solomon took the throne. He said, listen, on the day that you ask for a king, there are some rules. Number one, he goes, I pick, not you. And then number two, he says, the kings need to not do this, th these things. And he lists like four or five things. And then he said, your king needs to do these things. And he lists, I think, two things, maybe three we already talked about one of the things that Deuteronomy 17 says that God told him not to do, which is multiply wives. Solomon's already done that. But we see in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, that the Lord also says this, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. So, it's not like God just said, hey, you know, trust me for military victory. He specifically says, I don't want Israel ever having a strong cavalry. Now, why that? Well, I realize that modern warfare has gone beyond some of my knowable metaphors. When I first started teaching the Bible, I would say things like, well, the, the cavalry back then, the horse back then was like the modern day tank. Now we've got all sorts of things that are better than a tank. But the idea is it's the same concept all right? It's the, the same thing that a chariot did. The idea of having horses and chariots or a cavalry, it was worth, you know, sometimes 25, 30, 40 men, just one. 
You had three men sitting in a chariot, one guy driving it, then the other guy, guys with spears, and they would just mow down people. And so people, nations that had strong cavalries were feared. But God told Israel, he said, I don't ever want you having a strong cavalry. I want you trusting me for military victory. One of the things that is challenging for Israel right now in that they're in the land in unbelief is their confidence in their military. They have great pride in their military. And we read about Ezekiel 38 and 39 how that's going to not be able to help them in that day. And that they're going to think because of their military that they have secure borders and they have secure land and they'll let down their guard because of it. Because they'll think if anybody does anything, we'll stop them again. And when the invasion of Gog and Magog happens, they will be powerless to stop it. And God will intervene. And he says that he will sanctify himself in the midst of his people. And that will be the beginning of God pouring out his spirit upon the nation of Israel again, where he will call them to trust in him and not themselves. So Solomon takes another step on the slippery slope that eventually takes him away from the Lord. A step that, what's interesting, if you study David, he never took this step. We read a little bit of it in Psalm 20 in our Scripture reading. But in Psalm 20, verses 1 and 2, David makes it very clear his mindset as it concerns battle as their leader. He says in Psalm 20, verse 1, "'The Lord hear you in the day of trouble.'" The name of the God of Jacob defend you. Send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. David's mindset as king is, you know, when we get in trouble militarily, we're going to trust the Lord to come out, that he'll come out of his sanctuary, out of the, the tabernacle, and he'll come and he'll defend us and he'll fight for us. And that gives us the greatest advantage militarily that we could ever have. You get down to verses 7 and through 9 in Psalm 20, and he says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. Let the king hear us when we call. That was David's military planning. David had lived it out. There were times in battle when David went out to fight, and he would say, Lord, what do we do? What's the battle plan? And he would say, wait over here. And when you hear the rustling in the, in the trees, then you go fight. There would be all these things that David would have in front of him. They'd be outnumbered, or it would be a difficult situation. And every time, the, David would go seek the Lord. He'd go, it says he would consult the high priest with the Urim and the Thummim. What do we do? And God would direct the battle. When David defeated an army that had horses or chariots, Sorry, horse lovers. He would kill the horses so they couldn't be recovered by his enemies, and he would destroy the chariots. It may not seem like a big deal to have all these horses that Solomon's massing, but it was to the Lord. And there's a lesson for us in that, that when you and I see a command from God, we should never, ever think it's not a big deal. Don't ever deceive yourself into thinking that ignoring even the simplest of God's commands won't affect you negatively somehow, because it will eventually, even if so many things are going well right now, it will eventually come back to bite you. 
Now, I'm being critical of Solomon, but despite the fact that he's had a few of these slip-ups, God remains faithful to his promise to Solomon. And so we come back here in 1 Kings 4, verse 29, and it tells us that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. Remember, Solomon had prayed for what? A hearing heart, right? God, give me a hearing heart. But it tells us here that God also gave him wisdom, which means skill in life. It says that God gave him understanding, the capacity to discern the right course of action, and it says God gave it to him exceeding much. It means in massive amounts. And then God gave him largest of heart. That's that hearing heart. Instead of a dull, small heart, God gave him a large hearing heart. We joke about some people being so spiritual that they have like a direct line to God. Solomon's about as close as a person could get to that concept. He heard from the Lord clearly, so much so that his wisdom exceeded the wisdom of all the other groups of people in that region that were considered wise. In Arabia, the Sabaeans and the Temanites were groups celebrated for their wisdom. In Babylon, you had the Magi who were renowned for their studies in astrology and astronomy. In Egypt, you had the men who were famous for their wisdom in math and astronomy and medicine. These were the normal places that a person went to if you had a problem that no one else could solve. If you had the finances, you would go to these places. But now it tells us that people came to Solomon when that happened. They came to him. Verse 31, for he was wiser than all men, just like God promised he would be. He was even wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Heman. That's not Heman and the power of whatever. That's a different He-man. Ethan here, my son Ethan's named after this guy, the Ezraite. These are two of David's worship leaders, Ethan and Heman. They were famous songwriters. Both of them have, each have a psalm uh, in Scripture that they wrote. He was wiser than them. We don't know who Chalcol and, Dard, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, were, uh, but it says that Solomon's fame was in all nations round about. Verse 32, why? Because it says he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He had a song for every wife and concubine. Joking. We will study the Proverbs when we get to the book of Proverbs in 2074. The songs that he wrote, two of them made their way to Scripture. Psalm 72 and Psalm 127 are written by Solomon. Which is fascinating. You have two worship leaders, they only have one song. Solomon's got two. He was wiser. He spoke about trees from the cedar tree that's in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of creeping things and of fishes. He was a fisherman. And there came all of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth, which had heard of his wisdom. It must have been an exciting time to be an Israeli. I wonder how many of David's close friends who were still serving in government probably just shook their heads when they would walk around the palace, or they'd listen to Solomon to handle a case. Can you imagine how they must have felt? You know, I'm sure there are probably times when Benaiah would probably elbow somebody else and be like, do you remember when we were sleeping in a cave? Nope, me neither. Life is good. Life is good. 
They've come a long way from being on the run from Saul and sleeping in caves, which brings us back to the point of this entire chapter. I know I've pointed out some interesting things. We say, why is this chapter here? There's a point to it. Covenant. Covenant. God kept his covenant with David. God is a covenant-keeping God. It's why we see Israel as a nation today, despite all the odds. Despite continuing odds, as most of the world opposes them. It's why we have so much hope for a millennial reign of Christ, even though the world is so messed up right now. It's because God keeps his promises. He keeps his covenants. And because God kept his covenant with David and with Israel back then, and because we see God keeping his covenant with David and Israel now, we can know that we will see God fulfill his covenant with David and Israel in full by sending the Messiah to rule and reign over this earth. This is why, by the way, it is so very important that we do not confuse God's promises to Israel as being fulfilled in the church. It is so important because when we end up watering down God's promises, we begin thinking like we're in some kind of pseudo-millennium, or we end up with big heads that believe, well, we're the ones who have to bring about the millennium through force of arms or taking over the government, or we can even begin to think that, well, our nation is the promised nation now. We're the new Israel. And when we lose sight of God's faithfulness to David and to Israel, we will lose sight of his faithfulness to us. We will lose sight of the promises that we're supposed to cling to when we go running after something different. Understanding God's covenants and promises correctly is so important to our practical everyday life. We have to close, but I want to encourage you to read Daniel 9 when you get a chance this week. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prays on the basis of covenant is one of the most precious prayers because here you have this man who has been faithful to God his entire life despite horrible, horrible circumstances. He has remained a witness in a foreign land where he does not fit in at all. And in the midst of it all, as he's reading the Scriptures and he sees that God made a promise that they would only be in Babylon for 70 years and then he would bring them back to the promised land. And he prays on the basis of covenant. He says, And I prayed unto the Lord my God in Daniel 9, 4, and I made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and awesome God, keeping the covenant and his loyal love to those who love him and to them that keep his commandments. He goes right back to God's covenant. And so I ask you tonight, do you understand God's covenant promises to the church, because we have different ones. Do you understand God's covenant promises to you as his son or his daughter? Because you will struggle in everyday life if you don't. So my encouragement to you is this. Read your Bible. And when you find his covenant promises, make some way to note it down. Make some way to note it down and then act accordingly because it changes everything. There have been so many times that I've been faced with situations in my life where I don't understand what God is doing. I don't sense the Lord's presence. I don't see how he's going to resolve this. But I can go back 
and I can cling to the fact that, God, you've made me very specific promises. God, you've made the church specific promises. When I'm feeling beat down and like I want to give up or like I'm a failure or like God can't fix the mess I'm in or God can't fix me, I can constantly remember the truth that Jesus promised that the gates of hell won't prevail against my church. In other words, at some point, I'm going to be back on the offensive taking ground from the enemy. Right now, it feels like I'm surrounded with spears all pointed at my neck. But that is not where I will end up. And so you can look around you and see all the danger, like David with the stones, people with the stones, and you can encourage yourself in the Lord. And you can tell your soul, soul, we got to have a chat. Why art thou cast down? Why are you disquieted in me? Hope thou in God. Because he has made promises to us. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, what a cool thought that you've given us promises. Lord, we're not the nation of Israel. We are a different entity, the church. But Lord, you've given us precious promises too. And, and so when we read about these stories of how you were faithful to your covenant promises to David and to the nation of Israel, Lord, we can only just rest in the knowledge that if you were faithful to them in all of their struggles and all their imperfections and all the enemies that surrounded them at times, Lord, you will be faithful to us and the promises you've made to us. And so right now in this evening, Lord, we take our stand on that firm, solid ground. Lord, you know where everybody's at tonight. You know if people are in the middle of good times or you know if people are, are feeling the pain. Lord, wherever we're at, though, we, we come to you now and we confess the truth. We trust in your promises, Lord, with all our heart. We will not lean on our own understanding, but in everything that's going on around us, we will. We will take you into account. Lord, as there are those who are even saying those words in their heart right now, would you just provide for them and care for them? And Lord, would you look upon them? Would you begin rescuing them and delivering them and setting their feet on solid ground? I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.